Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. Today I'm going to be telling you guys part one of The Giggling Granny. So grab yourself some coffee and let's dive on in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Nancy Doss was born in Blue Mountain, Alabama on November 4th, 1905 to a family of farmers. At a really young age, her nickname became Nanny, and so that is what she's referred to for the rest of her life, really. As a child, she had one brother and three sisters and was being raised by James Hazel and Louisa Hazel. It is speculated that James may not have been her biological father because James and Louisa, who was going by Lou, did not get married until after Nanny was born. And at the time that Nanny was born, Lou was living on her own. So it's kind of speculated that he probably had a different father, but James was responsible for raising her. However, he honestly wasn't that great of a father. He was reportedly pretty abusive towards Nanny and her four other siblings. And while her mom didn't approve of the abuse, she didn't really do anything to stop it. She kind of just stood by. To be fair, it's 1905. That's a really, really different time period than where we're at now. And abuse wasn't seen the same way as it is, especially when it was, you know, a wife against a husband. Well, and often, I mean, they're probably scared to step in. I can imagine the abuse probably stemmed further than just to Nanny. Yes, he was abusive towards, yeah, all all, uh, five of the children and then also towards the mom. So, you know, the wife trying to accuse the husband of anything like that, they're not going to take that well at that age, in that time frame. Along with some of the physical abuse that Nanny was receiving from James, she was receiving just a lot of overall neglect. So she was not allowed to attend school because James wanted her to work on the farm instead. And so she didn't learn how, never really knew how to read. This was the same for all of his children. When Nanny was about seven years old, she was going with her family on a train to visit some relatives in Southern Alabama. But while they're on the train, it ends up stopping really suddenly. And Nanny kind of fell forward and hit her head on a metal bar in the seat in front of her. And so for multiple years after this, the head trauma had caused multiple headaches, blackouts, and depression. And it was just seen that a portion of her personality had kind of changed after this traumatic injury. You know, we've talked about this a lot on different serial killer episodes specifically, that kind of nature versus nurture versus trauma or head injuries. And I feel like I've always believed the makings of like a serial killer could be a combo, but I don't think it's any coincidence that so often when we cover these cases, there is neglect and abuse in this person's childhood and oftentimes coupled with a head injury. Absolutely. So uh, for those of you that don't know, 
my undergrad is in psychology and criminal justice, but I'm currently going to graduate school for psychology. And I'm currently taking cognitive psychology and neuropsych. So we're very much studying the brain and all of that. Not my favorite subject, to be honest, to study like the in-depth working of the brain. But we were actually talking the other day in class about the frontal lobe and damage to that and how much that can change a person just from that damage. And I was obviously, because it's me, obviously thinking about all these cases that we cover where we are seeing that in serial killers and in just people in general. I mean, there, there's wrestling cases. I think we covered one, but there's like a lot of wrestlers who have like a lot of head damage and things and or football players. And then they just snap and kill their family one day. And it's not necessarily because they wanted to, but it is genuinely just like head trauma. And so to be studying it now in in more depth to see exactly which parts of the brain and like which of the lobes are affected by this and stuff, it's it's kind of interesting. Maybe by the end of this class, I'll be able to give a more in-depth explanation as to all of this. (laughs) But as of right now, it's just kind of interesting to be actually looking through everything and seeing how much you know, like abuse in a childhood, abuse in childhood can actually affect the structure of somebody's brain. As a child, Nanny was very intrigued with romance. And this honestly went into her adulthood as well. So she loved reading romance novels and looking through romance magazines and would frequently talk about her desire to get married, even from like a young age of seven or eight. Her favorite part in the magazines or in the newspapers was referred to as the Lonely Hearts column. So this is basically the 1900s version of a dating app. So men and women seeking a partner would just basically put a little blurb about themselves and sort of what they're looking for in the newspaper. And then people would be able to respond to that. So I actually found a couple, not that these are the ones that Nanny specifically was looking at, but I found a couple examples, mainly out of curiosity. So if you don't know, usually putting things in a newspaper, you're paying per word or even per letter sometimes. So these, they're kind of written funny, but uh, the first one says, Lonely Lanelli gent, divorced, caring, considerate, affectionate male. Then it says G-S-O-H, which stands for good sense of humor. And then it says N slash S, which is non-smoker, 56, five foot eight, enjoys life, gardening, music, theater, dance, holidays, animals, nights in slash out, seeks genuine realistic lady for friendship slash romance he literally put everything yes he did yeah i like to be inside but i like to be outside i like to stay in not do a lot but i like to go to concerts and music like and do everything dear lord and then and then i put another one in here just kind of compare the two so this is another one titled loving caring male is there anybody out there willing to give a good man a chance i'm 28 with a gsoh good sense of humor and i'm looking for a female 20 to 30 for tlc Tender, loving care, friendship, and a possible relationship. The TLC that one seems part seems a little got bit me. more believable. Oh it yeah. Does. <laughs> well, whenever I hear TLC, I'm thinking of like a house or a car. Yes, <laughs> but he he just needs some tender, loving care. I guess I don't know. I just thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. But those <laughs> those are a couple examples of what dating looked like in the early 1900s. In case you guys were curious, I'm not sure that it's any better than Bumble or Tinder or. Or the dating apps are. Yeah, I mean, you have no idea what they look like. It might be a more wholesome dating experience, It's about actually. personality, Abby. Yep. 
Unless they list every personality trait, so you have no idea what they are. <laughs> exactly. Like, guy number one. You know, it is nice that he put non-smoker, though, because that could be a make or break for people. I feel like back then, too, it was probably a lot more common. To be a smoker? Like cigars. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Cigars specifically. Or just Absolutely. tobacco, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it's cool to kind of, like, see what dating was like back then. Wouldn't want to be a part of it. Don't even want to be a part of dating in 2023. But it is interesting to see, like how that how that worked maybe i'm going off too much on a tangent but newspapers from (laughs) the like early um, 20th century always crack me up because it'll be like miss fugate had a dinner party here's a list of people who attended like stuff like that i'm always like who gives a shit (laughs) yes it is very interesting to see like stuff written from back then so i was i was just talking about this too because so the bible if you've ever read the bible will say things like that like you know we had this event happen these people were all there and it lists like a hundred people and i'm like i'm not sitting here reading a hundred names and and it's not and if you've read the bible it's not just name it's like you know blank or so-and-so son of blank so-and-so daughter of blank like go through like the whole genealogy. They do. And, and so it's just funny because the newspapers are the exact same format. But it, yeah, they're just... Mm-hmm. It is interesting to go back and look through that. So as intriguing as we find it now, Nanny also found it very intriguing back then. So she was constantly looking through them and seeing all of the different people that were available, I guess. But her dad was really strict with her and her sisters. And so they... He didn't allow them to wear makeup. He didn't allow them to wear clothing that could possibly be seen as attractive. He didn't allow them to go to dances or to social events. And he said that he did this to protect them because he didn't want them to be molested by men. It's like spinning that whole trope that like you're asking for it when you're dressed that way. But he's like, no, I just like really don't want people to attack you. Yeah, I kind of struggled back and forth with this one. So to add to that comment... There were a lot of reports that I saw where there were actually multiple instances where Nanny was molested. Oh, that's unfortunate. And I don't know if he was doing this all after they like she had experienced this or if during this whole process of trying to stop that from happening, it was still happening. But and I know that they believed so differently back then. But it's not, you know, what you do or what clothing you're wearing or anything like that. Like, that's not an excuse. Men should be able to control themselves one way or the other. Yep. The conclusion is men can suck. When Nanny turned 16, she ended up getting married to a man named Charlie Braggs. So Charlie and Nanny were actually working together at a linen thread factory, and that's where they had met. And so they decided that they wanted to get married. And after four months of dating, her father approved the marriage and Nanny left to go live with Charlie. Charlie, however, was an only child, unlike Nanny, who had four other siblings. And so his mom was very invested in his life. And so she insisted when the two got married that she was going to live with them. There was actually something written later on. I don't know exactly when it was written, but Nanny had wrote about her mother-in-law and said, quote, I married as my father wished in 1921 to a boy I only knowed for about four to five months who had no family, only a mother who was unwed and who had taken over my life completely when we were married. 
She never seen anything wrong with what he'd done, but she would take spells. She would not let my own mother stay all night. End quote. So, in case you weren't aware from that, Nanny was not a fan of Charlie's mother living with them. Partially because, so apparently her mother-in-law was very, very needy and constantly required attention from Charlie. It would pull Charlie away from Nanny and sometimes it, she would say like, no, you guys can't go do this because I want you here. And so Nanny wasn't able to do the things that she wanted to do. So she found it extremely frustrating. I can totally understand finding that frustrating. I also find the whole mother-son dynamic here slightly creepy. So in 1923, Nanny and Charlie had their first child. And by 1927, they had a total of four daughters. After they'd had their fourth child, Nanny started drinking and smoking a lot. She claimed that it was just due to the stress of having four children. Fair. <laughs> which, uh, yeah, I'm sure. Extremely stressful. It's probably but exhausting. Maybe, yeah, maybe not the best way to, like, handle that stress. <laughs> not so, the best outlet, maybe. No. So, Charlie wasn't a fan of Nanny constantly drinking and stuff. And so, he would end up just leaving for multiple days in a row without telling Nanny where he was going. Just basically because he didn't want to be around her. Because of this, Nanny was thinking that Charlie was cheating on her. But Charlie was also thinking that Nanny was cheating on him because of all the times that she would go out and drink and smoke. So it was just kind of a vicious, unhealthy cycle between the two of them. And their relationship really wasn't going very well, obviously. To add to that, at the beginning of 1927... Two of Nanny and Charlie's daughters, so their two middle daughters, had actually died just a few months apart from each other from what the doctors had diagnosed as food poisoning. According to Charlie, he had left for work, and when he did, the girls appeared to be really healthy, but then shortly after eating breakfast, they started convulsing and ended up dying. Like I said, they took them to the doctor, they did tests on them, and they determined that it was food poisoning that had killed them, and they kind of just moved on. Obviously, this was difficult for Nanny and Charlie. Losing a child is difficult for anybody. And it definitely put even more of a strain on the relationship between the two when they were already assuming that the other one was being unfaithful. There was just not a great environment. Around this time, Charlie also ends up receiving an anonymous tip from someone who tells him that he shouldn't eat anything that Nanny cooks. It's not known who sent him this letter or why they sent him this letter. It definitely sounds sketchy that two of the kids died at the same time. You know, if it was like some illness, you wouldn't think it would happen at the exact same time. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's definitely, it is suspicious. I am really curious, like, who the letter would have came from, this tip. Maybe it was just somebody from the outside that was like, and I almost thought of it like, was it almost a joke because the girls died from food poisoning? So, like, don't eat food that your wife cooks because she's not a good cook and causes food poisoning. Yeah, really, really terrible, poor taste joke, pun intended. It, it would be. I would agree. But, like, the, I did, the thought crossed my mind for a split second. Like, Yeah. I almost wonder if it was, like, her family who didn't want to get caught. Yeah, it could have been. So, around this time, Charlie's mom also ends up dying. I didn't see a cause of death for her. Um, but Charlie's like, you know, I don't really have a reason to stay here anymore. My mom just died. Two of my daughters died. My wife seems a little crazy and we're not getting along and this marriage isn't great. I'm out. So he grabs his oldest daughter, Melvina, and takes her with him. But he 
leaves his newborn, Florine, with Nanny. Not quite sure the reasoning behind that, unless she was possibly, like, he was just doing it because she was breastfeeding. But he said that he took Melvina with him because he felt like Nanny was unsafe. And so I almost feel like he should also take his newborn daughter, if that was really genuinely his concern. Yeah, you'd think so. At this time, Nanny starts working in a cotton mill because she's now on her own and left alone with her newborn daughter. And she has to find a way to support herself and her daughter. So she's working there for a while and taking care of her child. And then in the summer of 1928, Charlie comes back to the area with his daughter, Melvina, a new love interest. And then his love interest also has a child. So when he comes back, obviously that marriage between Charlie and Nanny is even more done than it already was because he's now with a new woman. It's unclear whether or not this child belongs to him biologically or what, but he's come back with a new woman. And so Charlie and Nanny do officially get divorced and she and her two daughters end up moving in with her mother. So she does end up back with Melvina and her in her care, and then also Florine. After the divorce, she's still, you know, interested and wants a romance. So she starts going through the Lonely Hearts columns again, this time as an adult. So she is actually able to start reaching out to the men that spark her interest. She actually does end up finding a guy that is slightly intriguing, and she does end up meeting up with him. So in 1929, Nanny meets... A man named Robert Frank Harrelson, who she met through this Lonely Hearts column. And he's a 23-year-old factory worker at the time. He has been, he starts writing her romantic poetry. She sends him a cake. And then that same year, when Nanny is 24 and he's 23, they end up getting married. Frank was living in Jacksonville, Florida, when he and Nanny had started writing each other. So Nanny does end up moving out to Jacksonville with her two daughters, Melvina and Florine, and they move in there with Frank. Frank and Nanny are now working together to raise both of Nanny's daughters, and they don't have any additional children. They're married for about the next 16 years. In these 16 years, Nanny discovers some things about Frank that you wouldn't find in a Lonely Hearts column. Some things like the fact that he is an alcoholic and he has a previous history of criminal assault. Oh, no. So throughout the 16 years of marriage, they she ends up suffering from a lot of physical and emotional abuse from him, which, you know, we talked about in a, as a child. She also received a lot of physical and emotional abuse. Now she's getting that in her marriage. She also had the traumatic brain injury. So there's like a lot of... A lot of things happening to her that just aren't an ideal combination for somebody who's going to become an insane adult. Yeah, there's a lot of trauma happening. Absolutely. During these 16 years that they're married, Melvina does grow up, obviously. She gets married to a man named Mosey. And in 1943, they have a son named Robert. And then two years later in 1945, she gives birth to a daughter. While at the hospital, Melvina's laying in her bed. You know, she just given birth, just got out of labor. And she's coming off some of the meds and she looks over and her mom, Nanny, is standing there with her daughter. And she thought she saw her mom stick a hairpin into the newborn's head. But she was, you know, just out of labor. So she's like, maybe I'm imagining this and just kind of moved on. So then she ended up talking with her husband and younger sister about this. And they're like, listen, your daughter actually did die. And the doctors weren't able to determine a cause of death for the child. Whether or not Nanny actually did 
that. Nobody knows. Florine and Mosey did say that when Nanny had come to them to tell them about Melvina and Mosey's daughter dying, she did supposedly have a hairpin in her hand. So they were a little suspicious about this. I don't know if they reported it to anybody. Melvina, like I said, thought that she was just imagining things, but it's not really, to me, it's not a coincidence that their daughter also died that same day. I'm not even really sure how to respond because that like hurts me so much. Yeah. My stomach is like full of knots right now. Absolutely awful situation. I'm trying not to think about it too much because I am trying to make myself be able to present this case, but it's definitely like gut-wrenching and it's, it's disgusting. Like if this is actually what happened, if Nanny really did murder a newborn babe like that's a whole nother level of twisted well and how i mean how do you approach that you know i that's a big accusation if you're really not sure that's what happened and especially back in the day kids died a lot i mean it was very common and so that is that is kind of like just such a tough situation to be in. Yeah, because I mean, you can't just go up to your mom and be like, hey, did you do that? Like, that's a weird accusation. I don't know. I would feel weird accusing my mom of that. But it's also 1945. And so there's not a whole lot of tests out there. So there's not really anything that can be done to corroborate the story or to mm-hmm. say that it didn't happen, you know? So Melvina and Mosey drift apart. They end up divorcing after their daughter dies. Obviously, that's a lot of stress on a relationship. So shortly after, Melvina does end up dating a soldier. Her mom, Nanny, did not approve of this man that she's dating. And so Melvina and Nanny were constantly fighting over this relationship. One of the days that they got in a fight on July 7th, 1945, Melvina leaves her mom's house to go to her dad's. And I think it's basically to kind of just vent about the situation. But she leaves her son with Nanny to babysit him. And while she is gone, her son, Robert, does pass away mysteriously. They did do an autopsy and his cause of death was classified as asphyxia from an unknown case. I mean, at some point, you got to start connecting those dots. Coincidences don't happen that much. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Coincidences are one thing, but like this is this is a lot of death occurring around nanny there's a lot of children dying yeah we're up to four children and one adult right yes thus far turns out that which i don't i didn't even know that this was possible turns out that nanny had taken out a life insurance policy on robert the child and two months later she collected a 500 dollars life insurance policy which in 1945 it's a big chunk of money I didn't know that a grandparent could take out a life insurance yeah. policy on their grandchild. I, I mean, sure, I'm I sure I maybe not now without the approval of the parent, but maybe back then they could have gotten away with it. Um, or maybe she forged a signature. Who knows? I Yeah, it was interesting. I thought another suspicious thing. Yeah. I don't know. Add it to the if, list. Yeah. I don't know if Melvina knew about it. I will say that after this, Melvina pretty much separated herself from her mother and so did Florin. Well, that's a nice way to go about it. I think at this point it would have probably been a little harsher. I'm not gonna no. I'm yep, not gonna I'm not gonna go get there. Into it, but <laughs> somebody hurts my kid, it ain't gonna go well. Right. We'll say that. So at this time, Nanny is still married to Frank, and in nineteen forty five, Japan surrenders and World War II ends. 
outro. We're done. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> and so obviously the United States is celebrating. Everybody here is really excited. And so Frank is one of those people who goes out and he celebrates. World War II is finally done. And so he goes out and he has a lot to drink and he comes home and he ends up raping Nanny that evening. Jesus. <laughs> it's like I feel for her because of all the trauma that's happening to her. But then again, the other things happen and all of the empathy, sympathy for her goes out the window. It's just a whole big ball of a mess of emotions, I guess, and feelings and yeah, it's like up and down nonstop, the story so far. It's going to continue that way. Just a heads yeah, up. figured. So the following day, Nanny is mad and pissed that Frank raped her. Totally sure. fair. So she is out back tending to her rose garden. And while she's doing that, she ends up finding his whiskey jar buried in the ground. I think he was hiding a lot of his alcohol at the mm. time. So she finds it and she's like, hmm, what could I do with this lovely jar of whiskey here? So she goes and she grabs rat poison and dumps it in the whiskey jar to make it delicious. I don't know. So that evening on September 15th, 1945, Frank ends up dying a very painful death, supposedly from the rat poison. After this, Nanny flees the state of Florida and heads to North Carolina. She's not caught. Nobody has convicted her of anything. She's not even being... Like, nobody's suspicious of her for anything. This is now, there's six people that have died around her, and they're still, like, nobody is interested. Now, once again, this is the 1940s. She's been in different jurisdictions. She's been in Florida. She's been in North Carolina. She's been in, she's been in Alabama. So she's been in a couple different states. So it would be really difficult in that time period for it to kind of, like, pass along that mm -hmm. information. And so nobody's suspicious of her, and she is possibly getting away with some interesting things. But you guys will have to come back for part two next week to find out what happens in the rest of Nanny's life and see how long she can get away with people mysteriously dying around her. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>